0: You can open in your Bibles there to Luke chapter 20. We've been tracking Jesus' time in Jerusalem over the last several weeks. We know that Jesus arrived in Jerusalem to loud cheers and even the acknowledgement, the implicit acknowledgement that He is the Son of David through the cheers of many of His followers. But the religious leaders in Israel were not having it. They knew they had to deal with Jesus or risk losing their own authority and influence. So they've continually come at Jesus with various attacks. And each time Jesus responds in such a way that that their trap is kind of turned on them and they end up kind of being silenced or even looking foolish. At the end of the passage we looked at last week, we saw that the scribes there, they, they, they kind of forget for a minute that they're enemies of Jesus, and they say, wow, you have spoken correctly. And they, it, it says they no longer dare to ask him any more questions. They don't want any part of that. Jesus has played defense so well that against their traps, they no longer want to take any shots on goal, so to speak. But now it's time for Jesus to go on offense. And he's going to take the argument to them and push them. And I think he does it in three ways in our text. First, Jesus challenges the assumptions of the scribes, particularly as it relates to their view of the Messiah. Second, he challenges the leadership of the scribes and their motives. And third, he points to the widow as a model for self-sacrificial Love of God. So then we might be asking, all right, so how do, how, do those, how do these three texts fit together? Maybe even as Neil read the text, you wondered, man, how do these kind of go together? I think we could say it this way. Serving the Lord faithfully means recognizing the Messiah, recognizing false expressions of faithfulness, and expressing wholehearted devotion to God. Serving the Lord faithfully means recognizing the Messiah, Recognizing false expressions of faith and expressing wholehearted devotion to God. Let's start with that first one there. Jesus' first kind of counterpunch, his first move on the offensive is to speak in terms of the identity of the Messiah. I think in the notes I said it this way. Jesus confronts the scribes' theology. We would say theology of the Messiah, their view of who the Christ would be. Neil read it earlier, so I don't want to reread everything. But in verse 41, it says, But he said to them, How can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So instead of skirting the issues that these various religious groups wanted to bring to Jesus, they sent spies to Jesus to kind of Try to trip him up in different areas, whether it be theology, whether it be taxes, whether it be the role of government. They wanted to trip Jesus up so that they might either diminish him in the eyes of sort of the religious crowd or entrap him in sort of rebellion against Rome so that maybe they'll deal with him. Maybe they'll even put him to death. And so Jesus is like, he's just done skirting the issue and he wants to go to the heart of the matter. Who is the Messiah? What is the identity of the Messiah? And and we know that it is Christ. And so, in essence, he's asking, who am I? We are seeing in the text this morning, who is Jesus? Now, in Matthew's account of this, he he asks those, there's, there's, there's scribes in our text, there's Pharisees in the Matthew text. He asks those who are standing there, who is the Christ, basically? In Matthew's account specifically, who is the Christ? Well, he is the son of David, they say. And that's where kind of Luke picks up our story. Well, how can they say son of David? Now, it was commonly understood in Israel that the coming Messiah would be of the lineage of David, or as they would say in that culture, the son of David. Right? There's tons of texts. As you read your Old Testament, you'll come across. All these texts that are kind of pointing forward to a coming son of David. You think of uh, the covenant that God makes with David in 2 Samuel 7. And as part of this covenant, God promises David this. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. okay. He shall build a house for my name. Okay, sounds like kind of what Solomon did and was. But then God says this to David, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Right? So we know that we know that, yeah, from David came King Solomon, and and he, he did become a king over Israel, and he did build a house for God, right? David was told. You're not going to build the temple, you've been a man of war, your son will build the temple, he builds a house for the Lord, but he wouldn't be the one upon whom the kingdom is established forever. And so it's clear, I think, even from that initial promise to David, that this refers to someone greater than Solomon. In fact, we we may remember that Jesus himself referred to himself as someone who is greater than Solomon. Right, you get this sense even, even in the, the prophets that though Solomon was the son of David and he was a king and he built the temple and he ruled over the kingdom for a season, that they, the fulfillment has not yet been experienced. Right? Jeremiah 23:5 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I, I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. So even in the days of the prophets, they're sort of awaiting this coming Davidic king, Davidic ruler. And so what Jesus is doing is he's not questioning that. He's not questioning whether the Messiah would be the son of David. I think what Jesus is doing is he's, he's asking, is that the whole story? Is that all the Messiah is? Is that all that the Old Testament even has to say about the Messiah, that he will be from the human line of David? And so Jesus comes at them wanting to to present a fuller understanding of who he is using the Old Testament. So he quotes the passage we read in the call to worship, Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, Now, the Hebrew would have read, Yahweh says to my Adonai, or Adon. right? They would have understood that the Lord is a reference to Yahweh, but when they read that aloud, they'd be so afraid to use the Lord's name lightly that they would just replace it, like, they would just replace the word Yahweh with Lord. So by the time they're kind of translating the Old Testament to Greek, that's what you get. The Lord said to my Lord. But again, the only reason I say that is because it's likely that the ones who are hearing Jesus would understand. This is Yahweh speaking to Adonai. And this, the the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So those, again, those who are hearing this are, are, are hearing... Yahweh speaking to David's Lord and promising David's Lord that he will sit at the right hand of Yahweh and that he will bring all all this Lord's enemies under his feet. And so, what you have, even in the Psalm 110, verse 1 quote, is you've got one that's distinct in some way from Yahweh, but the same, right? Same authority, same station. Same glory, same. we would say the same essence. He's King David's Lord. He's higher than King David and going to sit at the right hand of God. So the question Jesus wants to kind of poke them with is this. How is it that the king addresses one of his sons, one of his progeny, as Lord? How is it that the king of Israel looks at one of his coming sons, and again, we think probably like immediate children, but in in the Bible, it could be, you know, obviously generations later. How is it that the king looks at one of his sons as Lord? Now today, we live in a culture and in a time where a parent might actually treat their kid that way, (laughs) right? There are some three-year-olds who are treated like lords, but... In a patriarchal society, the son was understood to be under the father. So Jesus is kind of poking at this: how does how does the king of Israel he's how does he look at one of his sons and call him Lord? That's what we get in Psalm one ten one. The Messiah is David's son, yet he's greater than David. And I think another thing that Jesus is kind of Implicitly saying here is how could how could it be that the Messiah, who is the descendant of David, could be addressed in like the present tense in Psalm one ten? Like the Messiah is there, the Lord David's Lord is there. It's as if Jesus is kind of saying to the religious crowd there, have Have you ever wondered about that? You know, has that thought ever crossed your mind? Have you ever wrestled with this verse to its fullest extent? He wants them to ponder the reality that he, is, that he himself is the Messiah and that he is not less than the son of David, but he is much more than simply a king that's come in the lineage and line of King David. He's teaching us that Jesus is both David's son and David's Lord that he would be born physically well after David's time here on earth, yet was David's Lord well before his time on earth. We would say he's both human and divine. He is both of human lineage and fully God, seated at the right hand of the Father, and to him will be given all the authority to judge all people and to judge all his enemies. Now, whenever I'm preaching, I try to do a good job of making application from the text. But often often the most important thing we can do in the text is just see Jesus more clearly. To see Christ more clearly. And we need to keep in mind, actually, that as Luke is writing the gospel of Luke, we need to keep in mind that actually his, his goal in writing is that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. We, we studied that way back in chapter 1, verse 4. So Luke is writing actually to give his audience a greater certainty of who Jesus is. And here we have Jesus himself explaining who he is using the Old Testament. And so as we think about this text, may we grow in our certainty and our confidence in Christ that he shares the same nature with the Father, yet is a distinct person in the Godhead. There is one in Psalm 110.1 who is the same as Yahweh, yet distinct in, in a way from Yahweh. He's greater than David, and so he's on the same level as Yahweh, but he is his own person. Three persons and one God. So we can be confident then that Jesus is the one, and Jesus understood himself to be the one. In which every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, that his enemies will indeed be made his footstool. We can have confidence that he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophets, that there's a coming Son of David that would be fully human and fully divine. We confess his full humanity when we confess his full divinity. Even now, in our present time, sitting at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning over His creation, sustaining it with the power of His voice. The Nicene Creed was a bunch of theologians getting together to try to wrestle with who is Christ in in light of false teaching that had arisen about Christ. And here's how they expressed who Jesus is. The only begotten Son of God Begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. So we have it here in the words of Jesus. And what a, what a treasure, by the way. What a, what a treasure we have in the word of God to, to have in our text this morning, Jesus taking a text and explaining it to us and applying it to himself. He taught this clearly, right? And one of the reasons it matters to kind of tease this out is that there are those who will say, well, Jesus actually didn't understand him to be this way. Kind of the that he died and then the church kind of got a hold of of jesus and they kind of made him out to to be god and they worshiped him and they made up the resurrection but here in our text this morning we have jesus very clearly identifying himself as the son of david and saying the son of david is is more than that he's at the right hand of the father so for a while now these religious leaders have been pushing these issues Important issues, as we said, like taxes and, and heaven. But this is not what really matters. This is not what, at the end of the day, Jesus is, is worried about. Not to say those things aren't important. But the real issue that Jesus wants to press into these scribes and Pharisees in the audience is the identity of Jesus. Who is he? And I would suggest there's no more important question for you and I this morning. To answer, who is Christ? He is the son of David, but that title alone is not sufficient to explain who he is. He is also Lord and should be honored as Lord. So then Jesus goes on, he's going to warn his disciples, taking another shot at the religious scribes here by pointing out their failure to lead in a godly and loving way. Point number two this morning, Jesus confronts the scribes' motives. Look there in verse 45. And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers they will receive the greater condemnation. So Jesus turns and he begins to address the disciples. But he's doing it in the hearing of of everyone there. And so he warns them about the behavior and attitude of the scribes. They claim to be devoted to God, but they're obsessed with self. You know that word, beware, it implies kind of a continual, a, a vigilant effort Don't follow their example. These disciples will soon see the death and resurrection of Christ, and they'll be commissioned to go preach that as the only hope for reconciliation. They will be instrumental in founding the church and the spread of the church of Jesus Christ. So Jesus takes this time to warn them not to, not to become like them. In fact, be beware of them. And he does this in a few ways. First, he says, beware of the scribes' emphasis on appearance. They wear long robes, Jesus says. And these are, apparently by Jesus kind of condemning them for it, were designed to kind of set themselves apart from everyone else. Right? There's some... Historic text, not not biblical text. Again, we hold that on a different level of authority. But God had commanded Israel to kind of tie tassels to their robes as a reminder of the commandments. And there's again, there's historical text who would say these scribes would tie longer tassels on their robes to kind of indicate that they're more spiritual than everyone around them. They wanted to elicit attention and praise. These long, flowing robes were expensive and elegant and meant to point to their high station, their authority, their power. Beware, he says, of the scribes' emphasis on appearance. Beware of their love for recognition, Jesus warns. You know, they would be recognized, you know, and by their dress even, in the marketplaces and praise for their devotion, and they just ate it up. It fed their vanity and their self-satisfaction. They feed off the acclaim, the respect, the applause they receive from their fellow man. And They do whatever they can to sort of elicit this self-exaltation. Instead of honoring God, they lived for their own reputations, loving the, the greetings in the marketplaces. You know, we've got Some in in this room this morning that are doctors, have their Ph.D. in different fields. And, you know, I've never once heard, and I know Dan and Dave aren't here this morning, but Dan or Dave or any of you guys with a Ph.D. correct someone and say, actually, it's Dr. Dan or Dr. So-and-so. That's sort of the attitude, like, you will acknowledge me for my reputation. They like to be recognized and honored by being given the best seat in the synagogue which unlike our church would be the front row you can I don't know if you can see from back there there's nobody on our front row but like <laughs> these were the seats that would be fought for and you wanted to end up in the front of the synagogue because man that would indicate to everyone out there that you're a big deal and you get to sit at the feet of the teacher inside the synagogue Everyone would recognize their importance. Similarly, similarly, they wanted the best seats at a banquet, right? Which would be right next to the host. That would indicate that you're you're the most important person in this room besides the host. Jesus even alluded to this practice. If you remember earlier in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus actually said, Don't, don't come in and sit next to the host. You might get kicked out. Instead, go sit at the end of the table. and and you'll get invited to sit next to the host. Now, Jesus was making a completely different point that God uh, humbles the proud and exalts the humble. But he's alluding to that practice of, man, right next to the host at the right hand, that's a significant place to be. So beware the scribes' emphasis on appearance. Beware their love for recognition. And he says, beware the scribes' tendency towards uh, I'm going to say domination. Domination. They devour widows' houses, Jesus says. Despite their long prayers, they were actually unloving towards the needy and the vulnerable. And that actually betrayed their lack of love for God. Their willingness to abuse the widow for their own gain indicated their long prayers were nothing but a show. Right? That's not to say that a public prayer or a long public prayer is inherently sinful. I've heard people try to come at, come out to church with that. Like you're not even supposed to pray in public. It's not that. We're commanded to pray together, but Jesus examines the heart and he sees the motive, and he sees the intention that lies within. So despite their outward signs of you know piety, they devour widows' houses. What a, what a word picture. Like wolves on the prey to prey on the weak and the needy. You know, the, the Old and New Testament are both clear, right? The Old Covenant had provisions for widows. The New Testament has commands for how the church is to treat and to care for widows. Right? So the Old and the New Testaments are clear that God cares for the widow because it's a, it's a difficult spot, right? Even in our culture, there are needs and, and things we can do to come alongside and serve our widows. So we see that this is a concern that the Lord has. But if, if we might say, say it this way, if caring for orphans and widows and remaining unstained by the world is true and undefiled religion in James 1, 27, right, then what the scribes have is false and defiled. So James 1 says, this is true religion. Care for the widows, care for the orphans, remain unstained by the world. And Jesus is saying, the scribes, they devour widows. They devour widows. They take advantage of them. They use them for their own gain. So the warning is, Do not be impressed by external righteousness alone, especially if it's for the purpose of self-exaltation. Pride dominates the scribes. It dominates their hearts. And the combination there of the scribes' position of leadership combined with their self-righteousness and the abuse of those whom they were called to love says will result in greater condemnation. To whom much is given, much is required. And much has been given to these scribes. Much has been given to them. Yet they abused it. They sought to profit from it, even at the expense of the helpless, even at the expense of the widow. So these are... All examples then of what Jesus hopes his disciples will not be like. Avoid that and avoid them. Right? We've said, we ended our sermon last week in saying, okay, if you can't follow the religious leaders of Israel, who can you follow? Christ. You can follow Christ. They are not only to be aware of them, they are to avoid becoming like them. Right? And so each of these behaviors and kind of has embedded within it its its opposite behavior does that make sense Jesus sort of critiques them for the put on well if you're to beware of them for this what what sort of behaviors might he want to see in his disciples well we might say instead of the outward appearance instead of living for outward appearance adorn the hidden person of the heart right I recognize that I'm borrowing wording from Peter's instruction there on modesty towards towards women, but the principle is one that I think Jesus is warning against here. Don't get obsessed with outward appearance. Adorn the hidden person of the heart. Man looks on the outward appearance. God looks on the heart. We've even prayed this morning. It's so tempting. It's so tempting to live with our fellow man in mind. What are others going to think? How are they going to respond? It's so tempting to think that it's up to me to sort of keep up appearances and, in order to elevate myself. But Christians are those, even as, as Neil so, put it so well in his prayer, Christians are those who recognize the, the sin in our own hearts. And recognize that our righteousness is what we might call an alien righteousness. It is not from within me. It is from outside of me. It is from Jesus Christ. And so I can be real and we can be real about our sin. One pastor I, I appreciate, he says it this way, you can be impressive or you can be known. You can be impressive or you can be known. So we can be real with one another, admitting that we're sort of in the trenches together. Fighting the flesh, fighting sin, fighting temptation, seeking to to please God from the heart. And that's what I think the second put on is. So instead of appearance, adorn the hidden person of the heart. Second, instead of recognition, live to please God. Live to please God. That's the goal, right? 2 Corinthians 5, 9, Paul says, We make it our aim, whether present or absent, to please Christ, to please Him. Right? When Paul says present or absent, he's not talking about like whether I'm at my house or whether I'm at the church. He's Whether I'm dead or alive, Right, whether I'm in heaven with God, when, when we're there, what's our goal going to be? To please Christ. And that same goal sort of infiltrates our current moment. What's our goal? What do we live for? What, what do we do? What do we want bouncing around in our brain on a continual basis? Man, I exist for the glory of God. I exist to please Christ. It's easy, again, to live with an emphasis on man, and therefore it becomes easy to live for the applause of man and the recognition that man can give. You know, I've, I say this often. I, I consider myself more of an encourager, right? So I, I say this often. I think people are generally under-encouraged, and so it's important for us to be encouraging people. But at the same time, we, we want to recognize that in our own hearts, when we receive encouragement, it can be a temptation to live for that sort of thing. So my general counsel to you this morning would be, don't hold back kind words. I think, I think we need to be sharing kind encouragement, true things to each other, how you see God's work in their hearts. But one thing I think we can do is whether we're giving or receiving some level of acknowledgement or encouragement, whether giving or receiving we can, we can give that in a God centered way or we can receive it in a God centered way. Right? I think about the way the Apostle Paul talks and writes in his letters. He oftentimes says something like, I thank God for you, rather than just saying thank you. Right? It's just sort of, and again, I don't want to, it's not a legalistic, you can't say thank you, you can't say you did a good job, right? I'm not trying to lay some law on you, but I like the idea of driving at sort of a God-centered approach to encouragement, kindness. I thank God for your faithfulness. I thank God for your love. I thank God for your tenderness. I thank God for your encouragement. Again, this doesn't have to be a legalistic requirement as much as a general disposition that when we receive encouragement or recognition, in our own hearts, we're just thinking, I'm nothing before the Lord. I'm nothing before Him. It's all Him. So don't hold back on encouragement, but also beware of the scribes. Beware of the scribes. And don't imitate their love of praise. In your own heart, deflect praise to the glory of God. Right, It is He who has done a good work in you. The third thing that Jesus is wanting his disciples to put on then is instead of using others, serve others. Right? The scribes use the widow for their own gain. In the book of James, God warns of partiality by seating the rich in the best seats while leaving the poor. Again, that would be down front, while the poor can fend for themselves in the back. So here's here's one thing I think we can do as a church. Let's keep guarding against the mentality of our own hearts at times and in our culture and our world to use those who are usable to us and discard those who aren't. Right. So let's do this. Let's keep guarding against the mentality, what can you do for me? As a church... Let's keep guarding about about that. And I do mean keep guarding, right? Because I see God's work in our church here. right? How, how quickly the meal train fills up when the email goes out, how quickly Christmas presents are bought for a family who needs them, how quickly money is given to those who in need, how quick we are to even there's families in our church who have bought specific vehicles so they can fit people in their cars and take them to church, right? Or how quick to provide a expectant mom with gifts for the baby, visits made to widows, dinner invites to young families, right? So just, this is—I th- I think we're we're loving. We're, we're seeking to love God and to love others. We're not we're not characterized by devouring widows. Right, but let's keep guarding against the mentality of what can you do for me. So I think the, the thread that kind of combines these warnings together and sort of the opposite put on would be the scribes have a consuming zeal for praise and adoration and not for God, right, for themselves. It's prideful self-exaltation and selfish ambition. So if we want to keep on guarding against that, what do we need to do? Be on the lookout for selfish ambition, prideful self-exaltation. Repent of it. Turn away from it. James 3:16 or 17 where 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 there is disorder and every vile practice there will be jealousy and every and selfish ambition, right? I am totally like Trying to pull that from my mind, so I think I even got it backwards, but you get the point. So in essence, what Jesus is after is not a show, it's wholehearted devotion to the Lord. Instead of man or anything else. And I think that's what he sees in the poor widow there in chapter 21. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box, and he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, Truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her po- poverty, put in all she had to live on. I think the third point would be I think Jesus confronts, I think he tells the story here on purpose to confront the scribes' devotion. Devotion. Jesus, I think, places the failure of the scribes in contrast with the faithfulness of a widow. So as Jesus teaches there in, in the temple courts, he he's, can see where they, these offering boxes would be. You know, they'd be like 13 of these things, and they kind of come up like a trumpet, and you would put your gift in there. It's a free will offering that you could give that would sort of support, the work of the temple. And so he sees the rich kind of coming along, putting in loads of of money. And to the one looking on, that would be truly impressive. I remember, some of you remember Pastor Bob. He's, He's preached here before, but I remember him telling me a story about a guy who would hold back his giving for the entire year. And then when he would want to do some special gift, Right? So he wouldn't give anything all year, and then he'd say, you know what I want to do? I want to buy new chairs for the whole church. Here's a $10,000 check to do it. And everybody would say, oh, wow, look at this guy. Even though in reality, there's lots of families that give $10,000 a year. They just happen to do it every week or, or every month. The people in the church were very impressed by this generous gift Right? And I think that's what, we're, what Jesus is getting at. Like, don't be impressed by that particular gift. I think he's, he's emphasizing the view of the onlooker here. He doesn't actually undermine the rich person for giving. Jesus has warned about riches and the danger of riches. But he doesn't say the rich person shouldn't be giving. Instead, he's worried about the, the view of the onlooker. How do you view the gift? Do you look at that big gift and you're very impressed? So Jesus doesn't condemn the rich here. Instead, he uses the rich who can give out of their abundance as sort of the foil for the widow lady. Jesus is most interested in the widow who throws in a couple copper coins, ESV says, two leptas. These were like the smallest coins that you could have. Right, the smallest coins in, in circulation. You know, if you wanted to put it in perspective, what did she give? Well, if if an average worker in Israel would make like one denarius, right, we've talked about like that's that would be like a daily salary. To earn one of these little coins that this lady dropped in, he'd have to work for four minutes. Right? So four minutes worth of work. And you've got the equivalent of what this lady was able to give. They were nothing, right? They were nothing, but in the eyes of Christ, they were more than, than all that was given before she walked up. It's not the, th- then we might say, it's not, it's not the amount that was given, but the disposition of the heart that Jesus is wanting to commend, right? Not the amount that was given, but the disposition of the heart that matters to Jesus. I think what he's doing is not giving us a lesson on tithing per se, Right? I think what he's doing is he's contrasting the heart of the widow with the heart of the scribe. She is truly the one who fears God, and she's the widow. She's the target of their going after and their their abuse and devouring her house, yet she's she's faithful to the Lord. I think that's in the text, right? Because what happens is after Jesus sees this, in verse 3, he says the widow has put in more than all of them. And and you're supposed to think, like, how is that true? She hasn't actually given more money. And then when in verse 4, we get our answer. For, why did Jesus say this? For, they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. So again, I think the idea is to highlight her wholehearted devotion to the Lord. She gives out of her poverty. She gives out of her poverty. Clearly, the others gave more than two little coins. But in Jesus' explanation, they they gave out of their abundance, she gave out of her poverty. She serves from the heart, right? Not from the sort of uh, self-exaltation that the scribes serve out of. It's also encouraging, I think, from the text, that Jesus is the sort of Savior who can see the heart, Right? He takes notice of what everybody else in the temple didn't take notice of that day. I like this quote from J.C. Ryle as I was reading about this text. He says this, Actions and deeds in the weekly history of a poor man, which the great of this world would think trivial and contemptible, are often registered as weighty and important in Christ's books. It shows that the lives of cottagers are noticed by him as much as the lives of kings. I think... One thing Jesus wants the audience to hear is that things are not always as they seem. You have these religious leaders who look pious, yet here's the widow who's truly faithful, even though she has so little to give. The average observer in Israel would look on at the scribes, they would give them those greetings in the marketplace, they would rank them as among the most godly in all of Israel. And all the while, they'd probably show very little pity to the widow. They might have even assumed, as they've assumed in other places in Luke, that she is in her station in life because she's done something wrong to deserve that. Yet Jesus is pointing to her as the example of faithfulness in contrast to the false and defiled religion of the scribes. Becomes a, this widow lady becomes a, a positive example of without even saying a word. Which is is something that actually Luke does uh, often in his gospel. We saw it with the the woman who was known as a sinner who interrupted the dinner party to anoint Jesus. She didn't say one word, yet she became a picture for us. I wonder if that's a comfort to you. Right, we started by saying this morning that the son of David is the son of God. The son of David is the son of God. And as the text develops, you see that he's not the sort of one who came to kind of placate the rich or the powerful. He's not a respecter of persons. But he's honoring the example of a poor widow who has thrown herself fully at God and trusting in him. Humble obedience is not forgotten or ignored by Christ. We live, we live before the eyes of the Lord. Now, for those who have found forgiveness in Christ Jesus, that's not meant to be a scary threat to your 14-year-old on the way out the door. You know God is watching. Right? It's not meant to be a threatening warning as much as a reminder that He knows us. He searches our hearts. He's aware of us, of what we do and what we think. And even as an encouragement, I know we, we we so often fail, right? We so often sin, but He sees in, in your obedience in the small ways as well. You may feel like you have very little to offer to Him in terms of gifts or abilities, but the Lord knows. And therefore, we should be pushed to live for the glory of God and not the praise of man. We live unto the glory of God. So I guess... We should end this way this morning. Let's, again, the way we even prayed, let's set our eyes on Christ. Let's set our eyes on him who is so clearly the opposite of the scribes, right? We, we were talking about the disciples should be striving for that and, and, and we, wanna, we want to as well. We want to strive to avoid those sort of behaviors. to, But ultimately, what's being set up here is the contrast between Jesus and the scribes. So let's set our eyes on Christ, who wasn't much on appearances. Right? Isaiah 53 says, He had no form. This is prophesying about what would be true of Jesus. He had no form or majesty that we should look at Him, and no beauty that we should desire Him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. He wasn't much on appearances, but he always pleased God. Right? He, he is the Son of God in whom the Father is well pleased. Right? We heard that at Jesus' baptism. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. He always, only, ever, perfectly did the will of the Father. He pleased God at every turn. And he certainly didn't take advantage of widows, right? He didn't take advantage of them. He came to serve by rescuing the lost. He didn't take advantage of the weak. He came to serve the weak and and the lost and those who, Paul would say, were dead in their trespasses and sins. He humbled himself to death. He humbled himself to death. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And in the most loving, most selfless, most grace-filled, and most humbling act that has ever been done, Jesus laid down his life. He is David's son, yet David's Lord, and he gave up his life. Though he was rich, he became poor. This is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8. Though he was rich, he became poor. So that he might move you from poverty, I think he's talking about spiritual poverty there, to riches. All the spiritual blessings that come to us in Christ Jesus. So that we might, he did all this so we might come to know. God, to be reconciled to God, to love God, and after throwing ourselves fully at the work of Jesus, renouncing our own goodness, fully trusting and relying on Him, that after that we would be, begin to be conformed to the image of Christ, that after coming to Him in faith, we might live before God, seeking to please Him by selflessly serving others, like our elder brother, right? Jesus Christ, our Savior. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for Christ. And we recognize that we've fallen short this morning if all we see in the text is what we have to do. Lord, we want what we do to be motivated out of a relationship with you through your son, Jesus. May that be true of us in Jesus' name. Amen.